0: Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. On this Wednesday night, we meet a Vancouver Island teen who turned to writing after losing her mom to cancer and finding new resources that spoke to how she could cope with her grief. She now hopes a new book that came from that process will help others through similar tough times. Empty shelves at pharmacies over the past winter was a real wake-up call for many Canadians. We are heavily reliant on the import of much-needed pharmaceuticals in this country. But how do we fix it? Turns out it's not that complicated. We've done it before. Tomorrow will mark five years since the horrific bus crash that claimed the lives of 16 members of the Humboldt Broncos hockey team and injured 13 others. We speak to the former president of the team about how the community will mark the day. And there were widespread calls to beef up safety rules and training... For new truck drivers back then. Five years later, we find out whether those calls have indeed been heeded. But first up, the city of Vancouver oversaw the clearing of a very well known and long standing encampment on the streets of the downtown east side today. The city's mayor saying safety and fire issues meant the situation had reached a turning point and it had to be shut down. But is this just a band aid solution? Or are there plans in place to give those displaced a roof over their heads and the support they need? start in Vancouver where uh, if people know much about Vancouver they'll probably have heard of the downtown East Side It is perhaps the most visible symbol of what is a chronic issue in this country, a combination of social challenges from addiction and mental health to affordability and homelessness they collide on East Hastings Street where rows of tents and other makeshift shelters have lined the streets now for a very long time. Well, today at the direction of City Hall, Vancouver police moved in to shut down the encampment, removing all tents and structures. There are about 80 remaining there. They've been working on this for a while, but it was a big, big decision to make. And it certainly came with some protests. People were angry about it. People losing all their possessions. There aren't many places to go. Shelters are packed. Uh, Single room occupancy areas such as rooming houses and hotels are also packed and people don't like them. But Vancouver Mayor's Ken Sims said the situation had reached a turning point point. And it had to be done.
1: The longer the East Hastings encampment continues, the greater odds that more people will lose their lives and even more people will lose their homes.
0: Vancouver's Police Chief Adam Palmer said the risks were becoming increasingly challenging to manage for the police force. The downtown Eastside encampment is fraught with serious crime, violence and dangerous weapons, which have proliferated in this neighbourhood. Street-level assaults within the encampment have increased 27%, and nearly half of those are now being committed by strangers. And there was also concerns over fire safety as well. There were many outdoor fires, propane tanks. That have been another one of the concerns. For those who've lived there, though, Ken Johns is one of them. He spent nearly 18 months in a tent in the neighbourhood before finding a spot at a rooming house. He says the community is heartbroken after losing the only thing that they call home
2: people are losing their homes because while some people, they look at things like this, all they see is a tent, that's somebody's home, that's where somebody lives, that's where they go to sleep, that's where they feel safe. When you take that away and you force them into a shelter or into an SRO, they don't feel safe anymore, they're just re-traumatizing, making it hard for them to get ahead.
0: Now, this matters particularly to Vancouver, obviously, but it matters to the rest of the country as well, because this is not a problem and not an issue isolated to those city blocks where it's so visible on the downtown east side of Vancouver. To help us talk about this is Wally Opal. He's senior counsel at Broughton Law. He's the former attorney general of British Columbia and former commissioner of the British Columbia Missing Women Commission of Inquiry, which, of course, also looked at the downtown east side. Uh, Mr. Opal, thanks so much for your time tonight.
3: Always good to be with you.
0: Now, this is an area you've you've known well. You set up community courts there back in the day. You've spent decades uh, watching this neighborhood. What did you think of today, and how important was it? How symbolic was it?
3: Well, I think this needed to be done. I agree with the mayor and the police chief that the situation down there was so dire that people were refusing to go down there because of the lack of public safety. And when people are getting injured as a result of weapons and fights are taking place, and Fires are being lit. And uh, so something drastic needs to be done. So I think the police are entirely right, uh, as far as the public interest is concerned, to move uh, the people out so that the rest of the public there are law abiding citizens that live down there, and uh, their safety has been jeopardized by the encampments that have taken place down there. So this needed to be done. I'm sympathetic to the rest of the downtown east side. And I think that some kind of safe, some kind of uh, uh, serious policy measures need to be taken for the situation that's existed there for the last 30 years. So that's a different situation than uh, what is taking place today. So.
0: Yeah, I mean, for those who may not be entirely familiar or may just know it from the news or may have seen it, those outside of Vancouver, this area has been has been the scene of these colliding social issues for a very long time. And in many ways, those who find themselves there do so, uh, one would imagine, not always uh, voluntarily, but it is where people end up. And it is a hugely symbolic and also very difficult issue to solve for the city of Vancouver
3: well you're absolutely right, and I think we as a community have failed because we've done nothing much uh on a positive way about the downtown east side. You know we all successive governments look at it and uh wring their hands and and shrug their shoulders and nothing much gets done uh, when we did the Picton inquiry, we spent the better part of three years down there and beside that be- before that, I was a um a criminal defense lawyer, and I spent a lot of time in the courts at 222 Main Street. So I'm quite familiar with the social conditions that exist down there. Now, a lot of people will fault the police, but the police can't do all of it. There's social issues. There are people there suffering from mental illness, poverty, drug addiction, and all of those are social issues. That really requires a community effort to do something about it so that that part of the city can be livable um and so that needs to be done it has to be received some kind of priorities but as i said a moment ago there doesn't seem to be a lot that was done in the last uh, 25 to 30 years in fact i would think it's worse now than it was in the 1970s when i first started going down there to the provincial court Mm
0: Yeah, I mean, one gets that impression. We've seen sort of an increase in the in the volatility of these issues in many cities, right? We I mean, right across the country, right now right now, this collision between addiction and mental health and affordability and homelessness. We're seeing it in a lot of places, but the downtown east side has always kind of been uh, the real symbol of it. I think for the, even those who had never seen it before, may have seen it in that part of Vancouver over the years. Where do you think things have gone wrong? Because I don't think it's for the lack of good intention to some to some intent. I mean, people. I've been down there many times. <laughs> You know, I think a lot of people down there are suffering through many different issues. Uh, There seems to be a small element that take advantage of that, that seem to cause a lot of the problems.
3: Well, I think there has to be a community effort and the silos have to come down. And when I say the silos, I mean all three levels of government have to get involved. This is a national problem that is taking place. And if we needed a wake-up call, it should have come after we did the Picton Inquiry, when so right. many women lost their lives. You know, Picton was the largest mass murderer in Canadian history. He admitted killing 49 women, and uh, they were for the most part taken from the, the streets of downtown Vancouver, the, uh, the downtown east side. And uh, so there are all kinds of issues uh, that need to be addressed. I mean, people don't want to be there in those types of conditions. So I think it's our duty as a civil society to do something to improve the conditions down there so that they're livable. The circumstances have now deteriorated with the establishment of all the tents and the fires and the the violence now and the random violence that has taken place. And I think drastic measures need to be taken, and they uh, apparently were taken today by the city with the police and the fire and
0: and the mayor's actions. And I and I commend what was being done today. Yeah, how did we? I mean, I, I guess the obvious question then, and you've talked about this already, is how did we get here? Because it feels like this has been a problem or an issue staring us all in the face. I mean, right across the country for for a while now, maybe not as acutely as it has been on the downtown east side, but it feels like people have been reluctant to try to get involved because there are so many other factors here about where do you put people? Will they just come back? Where where you know if there's not enough uh, shelters to house everyone. I mean, there are all these sort of uh, other issues that weigh in on this as well. Well, there's, it's a
3: multifaceted problem because the first thing that's happened is that back in the '80s, uh, somebody decided that we had to de-institutionalize deinstitu- Riverview, and uh, mm-hmm. so a lot of the mentally ill people were then uh, set up in the streets with any kind of re- no kind of resources, and the drug addiction took, is is rampant. And uh, while bits and pieces of policy take place, there's no concerted effort. What are we doing about the addiction that takes place? Most of the violence that takes place, the random violence that takes place, results from people who are addicted. And uh, while recent measures have said that the police won't charge people with minimal amounts of narcotics that otherwise would be uh, unlawful, the fact remains that uh, nothing much is done with rehabilitation and treatment of those people. Now, You can't blame one level of government for that. I think that all levels of government have to be involved. And this is a social problem that that then develops into a criminal problem. When uh, mentally ill people, uh, who often don't know right from wrong, uh, take Mm -hmm. weapons into their hands and they engage in random acts of violence, then I think we have a serious problem. And lately we've been getting a lot of random acts of violence and I think many of those people uh, maybe need to be kept in custody uh, those that are charged with crimes but uh, but I, you know I'm not in a position to criticize the judges for what they're doing uh, on the other hand I think that that maybe maybe uh, more people need to be kept in custody uh, and I'm speaking now particularly of those people uh, who are committing random acts of violence and you know there's something fundamentally wrong when we as a city uh, we always pride ourselves as being one of the safest and most beautiful cities in the world but we can't keep going calling ourselves that and resting on those laurels when people uh, are being attacked at random Uh, people can't go for a walk in the nighttime and in uh, various parts of the downtown whether it's yale town or the West End, uh, without being attacked. And we have a right to remain, we have a right to, to feel safe in the society, in our city. It's been a great city, but the last two or three years, particularly since the pandemic, a lot of things have gone wrong. And so we have to take a, a serious look at what we have been doing and re-examine what we've been doing. And I think all aspects of uh, of our institutions and our Cities need to get involved,
0: uh, but Mr. Opel, we all know that if you, you know, if law enforcement's the only way you approach this and you push everyone out, they just go to other places, right? If you don't solve the the underlying problems, and that's that's the big issue here, I think, is will this simply be a problem again in a, in a few weeks' time because not enough has been done <laughs> to try to help them, help them out, yeah. right? You, you know this you're, well. Yeah. you know this well.
3: Yeah, you're absolutely right. That's that's a very good point you made. I think today was a good first step. Uh, the first step is to make Hastings Street safe for all the people who live there and who want to go down there. So that's a good first step. Okay. The second step is what do we do about those people? Uh, are they going to go somewhere else? I think it's, we have to show some humanity uh, to the people uh, and we have to provide some kind of safe housing. And I'm confident the province is on its way to do doing some of that and fulfilling some of the uh, promises that have been made. And I know that, the response always comes in, in, in the form of, well, not everybody wants to go to one of those places. Well, that's too bad. I think the priority is, to, is public safety uh, for everyone, including the people who live in the downtown east side. You know, there's a vibrant community. Families that live there, there are schools and there are parks in the downtown east side. And they, the people that live there have been neglected for, uh, for many years. And I think that we have to pay attention to them. And at the same time, we can't simply categorize those people that are been in the tents as being disposable. Uh, something needs to be done. Uh, some humanity has to be shown to them.
0: So. Yeah. I, and I mean, you know this from the time that you know, all the time you spent down there. The trust that exists between the, the community that's down there, many, and the authorities is pretty thin. And it can't have gotten any, and it can't have gotten any better today. No, absolutely
3: right, because it's something wrong when when uh, people who live in that community, the kids that go to school there, when they have to keep looking over their shoulders to see whether or not someone is following them, and they feel unsafe. You know, ca- ca- Canadians have a right to feel safe in their neighborhoods, and the downtown east side is no exception. And we owe that uh, as uh, as Canadians to those people that live there. And uh, the blight that's taken place on Hastings Street, well, all the tents and the fires and the weapons have to be addressed. And I think the city's done the good, the good, it a good first step, and we have to move forward from that.
0: Well, Wally Opal, as always, thank you so much for your time. Uh, anytime. Thank you. Speaking of spring storms, David Moskrop, the journalist, is with us. We are going to talk about political stuff and all the other things going on in the world. And instead, he got hit by this huge storm today, uh, which reminded me a bit of the 1998 ice storm that I lived through in Montreal. Of course, that happened during the winter, so it wasn't quite, as, uh, wasn't quite as awful as having to live through it on April the 5th. Environment Canada said Montreal got 37 millimeters of freezing rain today, 37 millimeters. At 8 p.m. today, more than 888,000 hydro customers across Quebec were without power, 415,000 of them in Montreal. And in the Eastern Ontario, kind of Ottawa area, Western Quebec, another 100, 120,000 people in all. It has been an incredible spring day, April day. Uh, one of David's neighbors posted this to uh, to Twitter earlier today. The impact of all that heavy ice. We
4: have no power. Oh, oh, there it goes.
0: Ah! I don't know if I caught that. Wow! Yeah, trees crumbling everywhere. Memories of 1998 for me. David Mosscrop is a journalist, writer at David Mosscrop at substack.com. And tonight, he's no longer in the dark. He was a little earlier when we when we were planning this all. Now the lights are back on. David, welcome.
1: Wor- worst 12 minutes of my life. <laughs> I, <laughs> what a day. I, what a day I, well, I, was, I was worried I was going to start thinking. And <laughs> I, I came, it got so bad, I almost started reading a book.
0: You don't wanna you don't wanna start that. You mean you know if no, you can just sort of leads. pretend pretended to have scrolled for a while.
1: <laughs> well the, well uh, in anticipation, we had charged our phones here in the house and we had backup power in little, you know, battery packs and charged laptops. So right. we were good for, for a little while.
0: <laughs> we were you, you know, th- it's not like the, know, the day that
1: uh, Rogers went out and we didn't know
0: what to do with ourselves. Exactly. I mean, I grew up in that part of the world. So, I mean, I know what it's like when you get the the, the spring storms, but holy moly, it's April the 5th. And it, I mean, it looked like a winter wonderland in, in, in Ottawa and Montreal today.
1: It, it Well, it did. And, and it's beautiful if it doesn't, um, you know, crash your power. And if you don't go outside, it actually made me think of all the folks who did have to go outside and go to work. I I work from home. I was not one of them, but I was, I was very, very glad and privileged to be Inside, looking out on the nice, beautiful, glassy, ice-covered trees, and not having to go and actually deal with yeah. it because it was sort of nasty. But then it's going to be, yeah. you know, like six degrees here tomorrow. So I don't know. You know, I, I, sometimes I think I, I don't understand why people live in this city. And then the train stops working, and then I think to well, myself, yeah. "Oh, yeah, we definitely shouldn't be living in the city." Nothing more.
0: Yeah. It's part of the fun. I mean, complaining about the weather is part of part of your badge of honor, though, isn't it? It's, it's, it's a birthright in this country.
1: Uh, it is, and and in in complaining about transit is part of is now part of that too. We have a lot of things to complain about. We're truly blessed.
0: Yeah, indeed, and 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 it is quite beautiful as long as trees aren't buckling under the weight and crashing into power lines and taking down power systems, which unfortunately is what happened uh, back in nineteen ninety eight, and here we are thirty five years later, and it's or twenty five years later rather, and it's uh, still happening. So
1: or being for that matter blown into the into the house i mean during the derecho in the in the last year uh, it was wretched 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 one of the worst storms in ontario's history That's right. and and uh, a tree came down in our backyard took out our fence the entire backyard was covered in a massive tree and it stopped about four to six inches away from the house. so it could have been much worse. but it was just that the neighborhood was uh, was full of down trees. the province was full of the city was full of down trees. it was quite wretched. and it's a reminder though that you know we are going to see more extreme weather events. That's the prediction and we've got to steal ourselves and our infrastructure for it. So it, you know even these anecdotal little bits of our lives end up being political because they do speak to something broader.
0: Yeah, speaking of, I'm not sure what part of Ottawa you're in. I used to live not too, too far from 24 Sussex, but let's have a quick, uh, we'll we'll let the Canadian press (laughs) fill us in on uh, on, (laughs) twenty speaking of catastrophes, and it didn't need a storm. uh, Let's have a quick update on what's happening with uh, the, what is supposed to be the Prime Minister's official residence.
5: When a lumber baron first built a home for his wife at 24 Sussex Drive, he described it as a place of peace. But now it has become a place of rodents. The National Capital Commission says the rodent infestation is so severe that the walls, attic and basement are filled with carcasses and excrement. The commission says it's even led to air quality concerns. This new information was released in public documents this week. The rodents are one of the reasons why the commission closed the building. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau hasn't lived in the official residence since being elected. That's because 60 years of mounting repairs has deteriorated the building. Mickey Judich, The Canadian Press, Ottawa. Yeah,
0: it's ironic he he spent time there as a kid but he's never lived there, lived there as prime minister. What is going on? What's the mood like in Ottawa over 24 Sussex? I you know from the outside, I lived in Ottawa for a while. I can't believe they've let it deteriorate like that. It seems like such such a crime.
1: Well, I'm simultaneously shocked but not surprised, right? I mean, it's it's shocking in a sense because you'd think as, you know, as a country that pretends to care about our heritage that someone would have done something about it. But keep in mind it's not just a You know, an historical residence, which it more or less is, by the way. I mean, the first prime minister to live there was Louis right. Saint Laurent in 1951. It's not exactly like it goes back to confederation, um, no. but it's political because the prime minister lives there. You'll notice that, you know, parliament is undergoing massive renovations that are going to run for decades. I mean, I think they said it was 15 years. I don't know what the actual count is right now, but presumably it's going to be going on for the better part of two decades. And it's going to cost a fortune, but nobody talks about that, right? I mean, no one outside of Ottawa probably even knows that's happening. It's never in the news. Nobody cares but because no. 24 sussex is where a prime minister lives and because a prime minister is part of a party and there are other parties that people disagree, that you know disagree with this party it's going to be inherently political in a different sort of way but frankly it's embarrassing and for for a long time the ottawa sort of chat about it has been like look just get on with it fix it tear it down we don't want to talk about it anymore <laughs> you know it's well, embarrassing yeah. And, uh, and, and, you know, a bit of a distraction from bigger problems, but it is disgusting. And, you know, you, know, you, you just play the clip. I mean, the rats in the walls, the jokes is right themselves, right? Like, it truly really is um, absolutely wretched. Uh, but it's a great reminder that we should, in this country, you know, take this stuff seriously. And incidentally, maybe we need some sort of reform, like uh, like a British national trust model where we can kind of try to depoliticize some of this stuff because it's, it's the current situation's
0: untenable. Yeah, it, it just doesn't make any sense. I, in fact, I had forgotten. I, I often forget that that Parliament has moved to West Block from Center Block until Joe Biden brought it up during his speech at Parliament a while back saying, I like the new place. It looks great. I thought, right, he, they're, not, they're not in the same spot anymore. No, no one thinks I,
1: about it. Incidentally, it's beautiful. They did a great job. And the Senate moved. The Senate's moved to the old right? conference center, which used to be a train station. And it's they're pretty nice digs too, and you know they, they've, they're long-term moves, and so they've done them up properly. They, in fact, in the Senate, they've even introduced television cameras now. And in the West Block Parliament, uh, it's, it's actually nice and airy and, and beautiful, and they've set it up quite nicely. Uh, it's where the staff used to go to smoke, incidentally. But Yeah, remember um, that. yeah so, so, but, but nobody cares because, no. because it hasn't been politicized in the same way that 24 Sussex has.
0: So the last I saw, I mean, I think back when I was there, it was uh, renovations were going to be 10 million. Now it's up to about 40 million. It's probably going to cost more than that. But the idea that when when people come to visit the national capital and they're like, hey, where does the prime minister live? And you can sort of bring them to Rideau Cottage. And if someone says, well, what about that 24 Sussex place? They say, well, it's actually condemned. You know, it's it, it it's a really bad look it's a really bad look.
1: it's a, we are a very cheap country in many ways though i mean you <laughs> know come buy it honestly imagine? but yes it's just it, yeah. and then it's not even just 24 sussex it's the planes right the prime minister is, is like flying in a jalopy right and, and it's also embarrassing and, and as soon as you start to talk about mail maybe we should you know gussy up the plane a little bit. Maybe we should fix twenty-four Sussex. It becomes this great hair wringing politicized, you know, hand wringing politicized hair pulling kind of thing and uh meanwhile other countries like france i'm pretty sure the president of france flies with a chef you know you know you don't hear people in the same well we can't fix the white house you know we can't fix the white no. house we can't we yes. can't have air force one up and running you know like, no. Who, who, but they don't even think about that because it's a given that it's an absurd thing to talk about and in this country it's, you know because we can get so utterly silly it becomes a big thing um, and i think most of us just want it you know who, who really like spend a little time t- thinking about And issues that are deeply important to the country just want this to go away because it's so silly. And we've been talking about it for so long, for
0: so long. And yet it is is indicative. It is indicative of so much else. I mean, the issue, I mean, one of the things that I've been given a hard time of, because I do it out of, sometimes just out of word variation, is we often refer to the government as, quote unquote, Ottawa. And that's part of the issue here is that people see Ottawa in that light, you know, spending money in Ottawa is bad. Uh, you know, if you asked anybody, shouldn't they fix up 24 Sussex? They'd probably say yes. But when you frame it a certain way, people get all incensed, and I think it's uh, it does it does it it is a very superficial issue and a very silly one, as you point out. But it also is indicative of a lot of the some some of the paralysis that we get into in this country over spending money on things that we should spend money on.
1: It, it absolutely is, and. Uh, in, in part, though, it's a choice to politicize it. You know, It doesn't have to be that way. If if every political party in the House of Commons tomorrow decided to say, we unanimously think that we should put money into these national heritage buildings, including 24 Sussex, the residence of the prime minister of the country, not the liberal prime minister, or the conservative prime minister, but the prime minister, um, and we're not going to make political hay out of it. Then it would be a lot easier to do this because people aren't waking up in the morning and, you know, going downstairs making a coffee and then the first thing that pops in the head is, oh, 24 Sussex, you know, I can't believe. <laughs> not- no, they, they get riled up by people who make a decision to rile people up over this, folks in the media, folks in, in, in positions of power politically and so on. It, it, it just doesn't have to be this way. We could worry about other things like the cost of, you know, food and rent.
0: At a time when Canadians are struggling with their groceries, parents are wondering if they can afford the food that their kids need. They go into a grocery store, pick up items, look at the price and put it back on the shelf. At a time when Canadians are going through that, these CEOs are making the record bonuses and highest profits they've ever made. That was Doug Singh about a month ago, as he was getting set to question Galen Weston and other grocery store CEOs at committee. It comes up today because we found out today that uh, Galen Weston got a big raise. Um, he uh, is made one point two million dollars more, earning eleven point seven nine million. That's a lot of money. Uh, it, it isn't. It doesn't. It's not the average though. The best paid executives in Canada, according to a twenty twenty one report, was made about $14.3 million, So he's not up there in that bracket yet. But you were talking about this today. David Mosscrop is with us, journalist uh, at uh is where you can find his work. Uh, you were talking about this today. I mean, it just lands at a time when people are like, what? You know, I'm I'm struggling to buy groceries. And now I got to read about, uh, about Galen Weston making a whole pile more money than he did the year before.
1: Yeah, it lands a bit like a lead hippo, doesn't it? I mean, it doesn't. It doesn't really sit well with folks, and you know, Law Blog says, "Well, look, um, it's, it, it isn't exactly an apples to apples comparison because he changed roles, and so the the compensation reflects that, and plus, you know, it was outside consultants who." suggested the raise to, to be more in line with the market median and so on and so forth and and to be honest you know it's it's easy to to, to turn Galen weston into a lightning rod for all this criticism just as it's easy to turn loblaws into a lightning rod for it but there are bigger structural problems this is an example of 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 you know how absurd the whole thing is but it's not just them they're, you know, it's not just loblaws it's not just Galen weston as you mentioned, no. there are people who are paid a lot more than him. But the idea is you know workers are struggling to get by. They're struggling to uh, you know, afford shelter, the mortgage payments, rent payments, are struggling to feed themselves and their families, can't afford education, can't afford transportation, can't access health care. And you know, it feels like a bit of an age of of robber barons, an age in which you know, tent cities are popping up in permanent encampments around the around um, you know around major Canadian cities. And some folks are making out like bandits. And you know, the, the CEO compensation is rising, uh, it decoupled from the, the, the worker compensation exponentially more and growing all the time. And people sort of look around and say, well, what gives? That, that strikes them as ha- inherently unfair. And it is inherently unfair. One of the things I always like to ask is that you look at what a CEO makes and look at what a, a worker makes and say, you know, are they really that many more times more critical than workers? And the answer is always, No, no.
0: Yeah, in in the case of law, and and again, I I absolutely agree with you. Uh, Galen Weston shouldn't be a lightning rod here. just happens that with all this going on and people complaining about the price of groceries, that his salary rate, his raise, which again, was voted on. I mean, this had nothing to do. He didn't ask for it. It was given to him. So why wouldn't he take it? But uh, he makes, apparently, according to the reports, 431 times the average employee wage at his company, which uh, you're right, 431. That's a lot. 243 seems to be the average number, you know? Yeah
1: you could you know i i'm going to just freelance a, a hypothesis here it could be i could be wrong we used to sort of joke in you know, one of the old political lines as if You know, you could live for a few days without the federal government and not notice it. But if the local government disappeared overnight and nobody picked up your garbage, you would notice it real fast. If you were to do away with, say, you know, every CEO and every board member, sorry, every executive and every board member of a company, it would take you a little while to notice. But if the workers disappeared tomorrow, uh, you wouldn't be able to get your groceries. You'd notice right away, you know? Uh, and it's a reminder, as the pandemic was incidentally, that um, workers are utterly central to every single aspect of our lives. Some of them literally died to make sure that we had food during the pandemic, and they continue no, to put absolutely. their bodies on the line. And and we have kind of sold them down the river and forgotten about them. Remember hero pay? You know that was sort of a yeah stunt that was by short-lived grocery yeah,
0: folks. yeah.
1: short-lived indeed. Uh, and then we forget, and we shouldn't forget because it, you know they're, they're, it's fundamentally the right thing to make sure workers are well compensated, uh, and it's our fight too because we're all in that same battle to try to get fair money for the labor that we that we provide, even writers, although less so writers, you know
0: yeah well there's less of- if writers disappeared <laughs> for, you
1: definitely for, wouldn't know no would
0: yeah well, you might but someone else would pick up the mantle <laughs> yeah, no doubt yeah, yeah. um what's been interesting is watching the politics around this because it felt like back in the day this was really and you know jagmeet singh was who i played off the top and i could have easily have played Played Pierre Polyev on this one, although he doesn't tackle the issue the same way. The politics of it are interesting because it feels like that whole issue around compensation, affordability, inequality hasn't found its political home these days. It's sort of floating around out there, looking for something and a voice to land on. And it feels like these days the conservatives seem to have found the right vein, at least, without necessarily talking about it in the way that we're used to.
1: Oh, I mean, it, it feels—it feels like indeed because it, it's uh, you know demonstrably true that not just the conservatives in general, but Pierre Polyev in particular, um, are much better at this in Canada than the left has been. And this is a sort of general trend that we see around uh, several democracies right now where the right has gotten very, very good at picking up a kind of populist mantle and speaking to the ills of the working class while the left kind of futzes about and does, I say this as, as a long term leftist, I'm not entirely sure what the left is doing. Couldn't tell you. And so you know, the right has been able to capture the anger, the anxiety, the frustration. And in some sense, the hope and the, and the feeling of, of injustice that is embedded in, in those in the working class who quite rightly look at things and say, "Well, the system seems stacked against us. Things seem to be getting worse, despite the fact that we're working as hard as ever, if not harder than ever." And this guy over here is telling me who to blame, and he's telling me how he's going to fix it. And that, and they're onto something. Now, I think Polyev is often wrong about who he's pointing the blame at, and he's often wrong about the solutions, but he's captured the spirit of, of that antagonism, which is, you know, and we're not supposed to say this in Canada, but it's a class antagonism. It's a class thing. And we pretend this country we don't have classes, but we do. Uh, the left hasn't been as good at that. In fact, you know, they're polling no, higher not, than I not, thought they would, but I, I don't see what they're going to get from it.
0: Well, David, I'm happy the power is back on in Ottawa. I hope you uh, survive the next 12 hours until it warms up again. And hopefully this is spring arrive, arriving for you in Ottawa at long last.
1: It's, I'm, I'm Charlie Brown with Lucy and the football. It's spring, and then you wake up and there goes the football you know, from under you. But there we go. Hope spring's eternal. David, thanks,
0: thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. Let's move to a story we touched on last week, which was that incredible tragedy in Aquasassi Mohawk territory, which straddles the borders between New York State, Ontario, and Quebec. Two members, eight members of two families drowned, trying to make their way across from Canada into the U.S. Um, We knew a little bit about each of them as it went on. We knew that one family was of Romanian origin. The other other family was of Indian origin Uh, for each. We're finding out more now about them, uh, specifically the Romanian family, because the lawyer for that family has now been talking. Um, It began when they they found six bodies at first, and then uh, a little while later, they found two more. And again, this was the Yordash family of Romanian origin, the Chowdhury family, who are from Gujarat in India. Here's Akwasasne Mohawk Police Chief Sean DeLude speaking late last week. Previously, six individuals were recovered from the waters in Akwasasne. Today, two additional bodies have been recovered. One, an infant, a Canadian citizen of Romanian descent, and one adult female believed to be an Indian national. Now that, um, you know, the fact that two small children, a two-year-old and a one-year-old died in that has attracted a lot of attention and certainly a lot of questions about who they were. It turns out they were a family. The parents were originally from Romania. They'd come to this country uh, on a few different occasions, but really in 2018, 28-year-olds Florin and Christina Yordash and their two-year-old daughter and one-year-old son, both their children had been born here. Both of them had Canadian passports, but we've also found out that an asylum claim that they had put in uh, had been rejected and that they were meant to be, we believe at Pearson airport on Friday to be deported back to Romania. Now the pair, the couple are Roma um, and that uh, minority community faces a lot of persecution in Romania. And there have been many who've come to this country and claimed asylum. In their case, there were some mitigating factors as well. But uh, Florin had had some issues where he'd crossed into the US in the past. It's been pretty well reported by now. But it turns out, I think his refugee application was really just looked at on the basis of safety and was decided that it was safe for this couple, even with their Canadian children, to re- return back to Romania. So many questions about why you would make such a drastic and dangerous decision. We wanted to find out more about it. So we I got into Touch with their lawyer. His name is Peter Ivanyi. He's a partner with Roshan Genova in Toronto, and he'd been representing the Ordash family. And he joins us now. Peter, thank you. Thank you. In a situation, I know, I know that this is you handle many clients in many situations, but the impact of this one must be difficult. I mean, you, this is a family that you knew.
6: It is a family I knew since uh, 2018, with uh, a break in the middle where when they went awol from me, and it's a first in over. Luckily, it's a first in over 25 years of uh, doing immigration and refugee work uh, to have to uh, respond to such tragedy.
0: Yeah, I mean, there, there is a story here. I know they came to Canada back in 2018. What were the circumstances with which they arrived? And I know they, they started a family here.
6: Correct. So they, uh, he and his wife, uh, Mona Lisa, came as a relatively young couple. I think they were 23 years old. Just after Canada got rid of the visa requirement for Romania in December of 2017, it started a a wave of Roma claimants from Romania coming to Canada. They had previously uh, made their way to the U.S. through Mexico since about uh, 2012. Uh, Now this offered a more direct route, a safer route, for those seeking asylum or refugee status in Canada. For Florin and his wife specifically, they presented uh, with the standard sad story of Roma of Europe, which is uh, lack of education, lack of safe housing, no medical care, no employment, no real employment opportunities, indifference, uh, violence, police abuses. And so like many hundreds, if not thousands, of other Roma from Romania, they they seized the opportunity. Florian of 2018, A young man was not the Florin of 2022 or 2023, by which time he was much more mature. He had two children, two Canadian children born in 20 and 21, as irresponsible or unserious as he was in 2018, which is now being reported in the media and on social media, where he let his claim be abandoned. Mm -hmm. He went to the U.S., returned to Canada by 2022 when we saw him again. And assisted him with his further application based on his fear of return, the pre-removal risk assessment, the Pra. He was a changed man. When I read the reports uh last weekend that he was twenty-eight, I was shocked. I had forgotten how young he was, because the man I had come to re-know after September of twenty-two didn't seem like a twenty-eight-year-old. He seemed like uh, very much uh, like an older man with the uh, weight of the world on his shoulders. Everything was about his kids now. Everything that he wanted to accomplish, every application he had us file was centered around the children and their well-being.
0: And yet, uh, you know, in these circumstances, and you know this better than most, I, I would imagine the system doesn't forget, right? I mean, this was it was difficult to make up for what had happened in the past. The last communication you had with him was to tell he and his family that they were being deported, right?
6: It was indirectly. I emailed him the negative decision on um, March the 29th, where we had asked immigration to stall the removal for the 29th, built upon the welfare of the kids, their best interests, health issues, appointments with sick kids, that sort of thing, but also the fear of returning to Romania. And the immigration department notified us on the 27th, and we in turn notified uh, Florin, and I never heard from him again.
0: He would already have made his decision, one imagines, that if this wasn't going to work, that he had another option, and an option we now know is how dangerous and tragic it is did this ever come up in conversation? I know this is probably confidential, but did he ever mention that, he, that this was something he would consider if he no. had been refused? No.
6: No, no. And I, and I would have really tried to talk him out of it. Not because I have experience with such tragedies, but I've read the news. I, I know that these things happen. There is cross-border irregular migration. It has taken place since 2012, probably before that as well. Necessitated, because of the Third Country Agreement, Uh, preventing many people from going to a legal uh, port of entry and entering there. I just uh, think that Florin was so destitute or felt such hopelessness that he needed to do something. And he needed to do something right away. Frankly, I've never heard of anyone crossing the water. I've heard of people crossing, as I'm sure you have at Stansted and, and elsewhere, uh, but that's a land crossing and uh, you expect to be intercepted by the RCMP on this side and the authorities on the other side and then you have your application processed i i never heard of anyone crossing by water and i strongly would have discouraged him but candidly i i wouldn't have been surprised if i had information that he didn't appear for his removal and that he s- tried to stay or further his stay in Canada illegally, just for the sake of his kids. But this, I never anticipated.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, you mentioned, I think, in another interview, that uh, that his state of mind was such that uh, that he was very, 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 very reluctant to go to the, to go back, and there was very little he was going to not attempt in order to not go back.
6: But everything everything we talked about, Ben, was the legal route. Can we do this? Can we do that? So we filed an appeal. Uh, can we do ask for a deferral? So we did that. But I think you hit on something early on is the process doesn't let you forget. I think Florin knew he missed a great opportunity in 2018. If he had just been more diligent and taken it more seriously and, and believed in the system that he could succeed, because so many around him were succeeding and being approved in the refugee process, if he had done that differently, it never would have come here. It being what it was, he didn't take it seriously. It was abandoned. It takes us up to the pra. He knew that the chances of a pra being accepted are far lower than a refugee. But he did everything legally because of what we started out with was he did not want to take his children, especially his Canadian ill children, back to Romania.
0: Peter, I mean, this is it's it's hard to describe the tragedy of seeing two children of that age um, die in those circumstances. But there has to be a lesson learned here about about how to prevent this. And I'm wondering what it possibly could be.
6: I think there are a number of lessons to be learned um, for would-be claimants or current claimants. Take the opportunities, uh, the wonderful opportunities that the Canadian system offers. Trust that our system is fair. Uh, Once you lose, once you're denied, it gets increasingly more difficult to succeed. A further lesson could be political, that the changes that are, are made for policy purposes have real life and at times tragic consequences. That's not to say that this particular instance was as a result of the recent changes to the third country. But the fact that third country agreement exists is why people are crossing, not at a legal port of entry, but over uh, land and uh, water. And then, just in a uh, societal sense, as much as uh, some in the media and and some in society are are now learning of the facts about Florida, are trying to some portraying him as gaming the system. It doesn't change the fact that. Uh, innocent lives were lost not just this family the Indian family but mm-hmm. in this particular case it's infants uh, with all the polarization of, of everything including migration I'm hopeful that uh, once people have put a, a face to to these tragedies that they don't immediately retreat to you know their corner and rally their side of the flag for either open borders or or closing the borders
0: yeah. It strikes me in this case, too, considering the two children were Canadian citizens, that there would have been an opportunity if the rules had been followed. And maybe I'm wrong here, but there would have been an opportunity to do this, to to stay in Canada or return to Canada at some point. I know how difficult that is, Uh, but there were other avenues here beyond the one that was chosen.
6: If the rules as they existed now were the same as existed when I started out doing this 25 years ago, then humanitarian considerations would have been paramount, then uh, they wouldn't have had to choose as between, well, do I make a refugee claim or do I make a claim based on the fact that I have established myself with the presence of two Canadian children? But as it was, the decision to reject them had nothing to do with, at least on its face, with his behavior, Florence's behavior. It had to do with the superficial assessment of situation back home and the fact that there were two Canadian children. It was just not really considered. Uh, really? Not really considered in in this in the in the fear assessment, Ben, because the children weren't making a fear-based application. The parents were making it. The, the assumption was, well, they're Canadian children, so they can stay.
0: So in, in this case, it had very it had everything to do with with the assessment of what the threat would be if they were to return to Romania versus the established the fact that there were two children that were born here.
6: Correct. Yeah. Our request for the deferral for the temporary suspension of their removal was built entirely on the children. So that wasn't built on the fear. And it, it wasn't enough to warm the hearts of the immigration department to at least temporarily prevent the or or stall the removal until something else uh, could be arranged or the, the children's interests considered.
0: It strikes me that in the case of Florence, of course, we don't want to forget the other family of four who also perished in this tragedy. But it strikes me Florence's case is sort of the quintessential one, where I mean, there's a lot of it's a, there's a lot of room. This is a very the textbook case of where the debate comes up, right? How do you enforce the rules and how do you maintain your humanity all at once? Peter Ivan, thank you so much for your time on this. I
6: appreciate your interest, Ben. Thank you.
0: Tomorrow is a somber day uh, for the entire country, really, but think back to five years ago tomorrow uh, in April of 2018, that horrific bus collision, that that collision that killed so many Humboldt Broncos uh, hockey team members and staff, 16 young hockey players. Were killed 13 injured including staff uh, a bus carrying the team you, you'll probably remember the details and where you were when you first heard about it but a bus carrying the team was traveling northbound around 5 p.m local time when it was struck by a semi-truck that had gone through a, a stop sign at the intersections of highway 35 and 335 the next day the team president of the humboldt broncos kevin garringer stood in front of the cameras a shattered community and a country in shock to deliver these words On behalf of the entire Broncos family,
1: our deepest sympathies go out to the injured and the deceased and, of course, all their loved ones. We are heartbroken and completely devastated by the tragedy that occurred yesterday.
0: Well, five years on, April 6th has been declared as Humboldt Broncos Day in the city. Of course, families of that team are working to prepare the arena uh, event. There'll be an event there tomorrow alongside the city. Events will be similar to many years past. It's always been a recognition, but also a low-key approach. Uh, That's what the families have always asked for, and that's what's always been respected. Kevin Garinger is still in Humboldt. He'll be amongst them, I believe. And uh, he joins me now. Kevin, thank you so much for your time tonight. Oh, thank you for your time. I mean anniversaries right they're they when you reflect on what was happening, I was thinking back I was in the news business when this happened it felt feels like five years and yet it feels like not no time at all really I can't imagine what it must be like for you and the community
2: yeah i I think you know you hit the nail on the head. I think that there are many, many days now that uh you're you know we have great days and that sort of thing, of course we're engrossed with our families and and uh enjoying our our work and all the things that uh, happen in our lives but there are many times of course as well where you think back and and you recognize the significant loss that was felt um, by a um, by a number of families by um by community um by a province by a country and beyond so um it, it does come back and there are many things that remind you and uh, I think one of the things that has changed probably a lot more now is we do think about the good things that have happened and uh yeah. and the and the positive memories certainly.
0: Yeah, I was thinking about that, about all the you know, the the outpouring uh, of sympathy from around the world, right? I mean it was it was remarkable to watch. I mean within that that horrific moment. So those horrific days, it felt like at least people came together and coalesced around trying to help the community. And that must still linger as well.
2: It does. It's, you know, it's, uh, I, I happen to sit on a, on a board with the Humboldt uh, within the Humboldt community. It's um, it's a sort of a cultural board that deals with um, a museum and a gallery and that sort of thing. And, and within the gallery, we have the artifacts that uh, have come in and literally thousands of artifacts and that sort of thing that people Sent in just to express condolences and that sort of idea, and we continue to receive them, and I think that's one of the things that uh, you know we know is that um, now it's been five years and people are still feeling the effects, and I think you know everybody is is grief is personal, right? And as much as we talk about, you know, we want to surround ourselves with people who have gone through the same thing. The, the fact is, your own personal grief is that is just that, and you're in so many ways alone with that, and you have to figure out how to to live with it and i think now you know you you over time i think what you realize is that it doesn't go away i think what happens is we just learn to live with as, as my billet um father's son or billet son's father said he said you know you, you learn to live with a hole in your heart, essentially that never heals and so you you live your your you live your life but at the same time that that grief never goes away and you just find ways to to continue to work through and um, live your life, and and then I think probably more so you deal with with uh, the um, you learn to recognize and appreciate the things that uh, that you're left with and that you um, can carry forward. And I, I guess that's one of the things that we know about happened during that tragedy was that uh, there was just such an outpouring of support. And I mean, I I remember a little girl, um, her grandfather bringing me a little bag of coins. And saying she wanted to give this to Mr. Garinger on, you know, for the for the Broncos in support of the Broncos, little things like that, or or poems, or or I mean paintings that were done that were you know were magnificent, or so many other things. And of course, fifteen point one seven two million that was raised through the GoFundMe, right. the largest in Canadian history, and and uh, I still I think still to this day. And 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 then on the flip side of that, another probably close to $8 million that was raised for the Broncos organization and, and for the foundations and that sort of thing that existed. So, um, that still carries on and we certainly recognize and, and, uh, um, have nothing but, uh, heartfelt, um, appreciation for everyone who supported us during that time.
0: Yeah. I was reading some articles ahead of this and realizing that all the kids on the team now were, were in grade school when this happened. I mean, time just goes by so quickly. Um, but but i i'm you know what happened that day must both be a source of of motivation and a source of memory for the team no matter who's wearing that jersey
2: absolutely i think uh today um you know we 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 actually just are, are in a playoff game in Flin Flon. and it was funny because i went to the last game of the uh, nippon hawks um our first round essentially against the nippon hawks and of course Nippon was where we were on our way to Nipwin when the tragedy right. occurred. Of course, yeah. And so we're we're uh you know we we beat Flint Planton to and and uh but at the same time, you know, you put on that jersey, there's a um the uh the Humble bronk or the Humble uh, strong Humble strong uh um logo is on the shoulders and that sort of thing. I mean, you recognize and and you're right. I mean, these are young these are these kids today who are playing on the team. They were in grade school, like you said, I mean, that's five years ago. And, and I, but I still think they, they recognize they walk into that rink and they see the banners and they see the things that are are reminders. And so I think there is an uh, an added responsibility that our young people have when they, when they don that Jersey. And, and I, I think, you know, that's probably not atypical of any team in the SJHL or any other league or anywhere else, but, but it certainly does look different when you consider that, humbled endured a, you know, probably one of the greatest. Um, I, I mean, you don't ever want to be proud no, of that, yeah. but one of the greatest tragedies in sport history. So.
0: Certainly. How would you like the rest of us? I mean, a lot of eyes will turn back on you tomorrow. I was watching that 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 uh, those words you delivered the day after five years ago. Uh, how would you like the rest of us to to think of you tomorrow? Well, I, you know, I guess. Um,
2: that that's a that's a really really uh, tough question in some ways because I haven't really thought about um, about what I'd want people to think about in terms of us. I I think mm-hmm. what I've always wanted, and I think what so many have have been expressing, is the appreciation for what others have done for us. And so I just I think if nothing else, I guess what I would want is to people to, for people to know. Um, just how much they were valued across this country, Uh, that so many people reached out in so many different ways. And it was through that support that we were able to kind of keep afloat in in a lot of ways in in trying to endure such a a difficult um, tragedy and and such significant loss and grief um, and, I mean, trauma in a lot of ways. And so um, it, it was that support... That um from people you didn't even know that really helped everyone sort of um lean on each other and that sort of idea, and now you deal with your own grief moving forward, but recognizing and and uh that that others have been supportive all the way through that I think is is something that we'll cherish forever and and that would be the biggest message is just a thank you on the other side to the Canadians and those across the globe who who really um reached out and and reached out, not even by sending something or doing anything like that. That's not what I mean. Just even in their thoughts. I mean, I remember being in, in Poe White County, Virginia, on in in uh, July of that year and having a, a sheriff talk to me for 15 minutes on the side of a road about the impact it was felt by his community because of the Bron- Broncos tragedy. And it was those kinds of things that you realized just that, you know, people around the world were really thinking about us, and certainly Canadians um did did a lot to help us and so um tomorrow when we endure the the fifth year anniversary of this tragedy we know that we're going to be dealing with our own grief and our own um dealing with that uh, again sort of individually in a lot of ways yet surrounded by others i think that uh um, we certainly uh, appreciate the fact that others um will have um experienced something similar and and i think if nothing else um I, I guess just uh appreciation for for uh what people um are have done and will continue to do for those who are who are um, dealing with tragedy in their lives.
0: Well, Kevin we'll be thinking of you again tomorrow. Thank you so much for your time tonight.
2: Thank you so much. take care.
0: The tragedy, we're talking about five years now since the Humboldt Broncos team crash. And, of course, we remember the circumstances. A trucker drove through a stop sign and crashed into the bus. Um, that trucker, 29-year-old Jeskarat Jessica Singh Sindhu at the time, was sentenced to eight years after pleading guilty to dangerous driving and causing death and and bodily harm as well. But at the time, there were a lot of calls. His training was really called into question. It was his first solo long-haul trip. He'd only had a few weeks of training, two weeks of supervision. Before that, there were a lot of calls right away that these safety rules be improved. So we wanted to know, five years later, have they? Alexander is an associate professor and director of the Driving Research and Simulation Laboratory at the University of Saskatchewan, and he joins me now. Alexander, thank you. Thank you, Ben, for having me. I was thinking back a lot to five years ago and, and the aftermath of that horrific day and what a, what a huge wake-up call it was uh, for changes in safety in the trucking industry. How much of a wake-up call was it?
5: I think it's probably the defining wake-up call. I think prior to that accident, uh, very little research had been done with with truckers, and I think we thought the status quo was was great. And I think that Humboldt accident, as tragic as it is, really opened the eyes of policymakers and, and trucking companies as to the issues that are happening in the sector. And the deficiencies
0: really were amount of training, you know, just making sure that people were prepared to drive these massive
5: vehicles on our roads. That's correct. I mean, that that was certainly one issue was the lack of training. I think uh, the second issue was the lack of uh, accredited schools that provided the training. A lot of the times we'd have schools that say they would provide the requisite hours of training, but wouldn't and would still take payments. And I think what happened was we'd had drivers uh, like the driver of the Humboldt accident, who probably shouldn't have been driving, but was driving. And that in part also resulted in a limited training that the driver had. And I think the other issue that really came out was the lack of uh, compliance with hours of service regulations, right. uh, specifically the paper logs, because they could be manipulated or fudged. And there was no way to actually you know, trace whether a driver was compliant or not. I know there was a lot of
0: pressure at the time to try to fix this stuff. Uh, there's been pressure since, especially from the families of those who died that day, to try to make sure that these changes stayed in place. Where are we at five years on?
5: Making progress, you know, policy happens very slow, uh, but progress has been made. There is um, guidelines now through Transport Canada, through National Safety Code 16, that requires a minimum hours of training, which I believe is 103.5 hours, but the provinces are still implementing that in different ways. For example, in British Columbia, there's a minimum of 140 hours, whereas Ontario will actually do Mm 103.5. And in terms of training, you know, the components, whether it's on-road and classroom, may differ. And the types of exposure they, they provide are also different. So, for example, in British Columbia and Alberta, you might get training driving through mountains, whereas in provinces like Manitoba and, and Ontario, you won't. But truckers are very mobile. They're, they're driving across the entire country. And so I think there's still a ways to go to make the training standard across uh, the country. I know that during the, um, the height of the pandemic and afterwards, there was a lot of
0: talk about how there was a shortage of truck drivers. Has that had any impact on the willingness of different jurisdictions to try to push through stricter rules?
5: I think it plays a part in it. As you mentioned, there's a shortage. And uh, in trying to ensure the safety of truckers and, in general, you know, road users, there are various things that have been proposed in terms of having an experienced driver help train a trucker who's passed their licensing regulations. Because we have to think about the MELT as the base. You know, just because you get your license and and you're now able to drive doesn't mean you're an expert driver. It just means you've gotten your license to drive. And so I think there's been a push now to have more experienced drivers help young drivers uh, or novice drivers come into the field and, and teach them the ropes. Um, but at the same time, that has an extra cost to companies because now you have to pay. And there's also probably a loss of productivity because as you train someone, they're not going to be as efficient or fast. And that means maybe you do not deliver goods as quickly as possible. So there's the monetary issue of training itself. And then there's the other issues of that cost. If a company's not paying for it themselves, if I'm a trucker wanting to come into the field and now the cost has gone from 5,000 to 15,000 because of the extra hours as part of the MELT program, you know, that could be a detriment to me wanting coming into the field.
0: Yeah, I mean in these situations when you're trying to push through big you know tougher safety standards you would think that the the load has to be shared right? I mean no pun intended, but the load has to be shared here by governments, by companies, by the individual drivers, but you can't put it all on the drivers themselves because they'll simply either not take part or ways will be found to cut corners.
5: Exactly. And I mean I think what you're seeing now is you're seeing a push for more immigrant drivers. I know in Saskatchewan there's a program now to try to attract drivers from other countries to come in because there's a shortage. Not sure that's the uh, perfect response uh, to the problem, but I definitely agree that I think subsidies need to come in from the government to support the hiring of new drivers to make sure they get the training. Because it can't come solely on the drivers and it can't come solely on the companies.
0: When we look back then to that day five years ago, uh, tomorrow, is the legacy one? Because I've been reading articles in the past where, of course, the families have had to come out again and try to lobby different governments to try to make sure that these rules are, stay strong or are made stronger. Have have we learned the lessons in, in the proper way? I mean, you, you mentioned earlier, policy takes time, that that's obvious. But does the momentum of that tragedy still exist out there?
5: It, it does, as long as people advocate for it. And I think as people stop advocating, then you know, things become a little bit blurry in the mind as, as time goes by. So I think the advocation for stronger policies and to ensure that truckers receive the required training is important. I think, you know, obviously things are governed too by the economy. And, you know, if you have large fleets complaining that they're not making as much money and, and drivers who are complaining about other issues related to maybe health and wellness, you know, it, it's hard to attract drivers. And, and that becomes very difficult to operate trucks and they're responsible for delivering Many, many, many goods and were you know instrumental during the pandemic. So I think the advocacy is really important. I think some of the the reluctance to maybe move forward with stricter policies is because of the uh, the, the thought that it might actually further hinder the attraction of, of new truckers and also the retention of current ones.
0: Yeah, although if you look at what happened on that day, the the need for this to be done properly couldn't be more couldn't be more obvious.
5: Nope. And and there's still movement going on. I mean, there there's still provinces that are trying to make the MELT programs better. So, you know, for example, I know Ontario is one of them. Melt because... that's mandatory entry-level training, right? Yeah. So yes. there there are still because every province governs how they want to implement that. So the base is 103.5 hours. But on, Ontario, for example, is at the base. They do the 103.5 hours, but other provinces will do a lot more. So I know that's one province that's looking to making that program even better. So I think you're still seeing provinces that are very interested in ensuring the roads are safe and trying to make improvements in that sector. It's, it just takes time to kind of figure out what that looks like. Because, again, if it's if it's requiring drivers to get additional training beyond getting their truck license, you know, what does that look like? What does it look like for companies? What are the costs? And that requires a lot of consultation. And so that's why things take time. But there is movement to make the melt better.
0: And Alexander, just given where you are, this must have put a, a very different focus on the work you do as well. It must have become far more real.
5: Uh, absolutely. You know, it, it's it's a shame to say that it takes something uh, as tragic as the Humboldt accident to open eyes. But it, it really did open eyes because before that, again, these issues weren't addressed and it takes something like this to get it fixed to ensure that this doesn't happen again.
0: Alexander, thank you so much. Thank you very much for your time, Ben. When I was a teen, I had a friend who had lost her mom uh, when we were young. And I was thinking back to it today because it was one of those things, I and mean, this is the 80s, right? And this was a long time before we had were told and taught how to talk about our emotions or talk about things that we were grieving and so forth. And I just remember how we were all, we all kind of walked on eggshells around her at times because you didn't want to say the wrong thing, right? And she was always really great about it. She would correct you if you said something um, or, or if you, you know... Said something that was incorrect or, or or thought you had. She would always take the time just to set you aside and say, "Listen, it's okay." Uh, but it's a reminder. I was thinking about it today with with this interview in mind because you know grief and loss impact us all in our own way. And uh, how do you survive the loss of someone close to you? How do you how do you continue on? Uh, it's a question that doesn't have a right answer, right? Uh, my next guest's mom was diagnosed with terminal cancer when she was 15. She says the shock was so severe that at first she didn't feel anything at all, and her mom passed away uh, not long after. And that numbness turned to a sense of profound loss and isolation. Um, all tough emotions for anyone to process, let alone a teenager. And it reminded me back of when I was younger, because she went looking for resources to help her cope. And even today, there just weren't many out there that that helped um, someone of a younger age cope with all these very difficult emotions that, that come with loss and grief that, um, that adults have trouble coping with. There was nothing specific for someone of her age about grieving, losing a parent, and so on. So she decided to fill that void by writing. And a year later, the culmination of that is a book called Healing Our Wounded Hearts, a real-life story about loss in the voice of a teenager. The author of the book is Olivia Hahn. She lives in the Victoria area, and she joins me now. Welcome to the show, Olivia. Thank you so much. Thank you. You know, I, I, well, my condolences first. I mean, it must be something you still live through, live with, and through every single day.
4: Yeah. Thank you.
0: You went out to, um, you know, I, I was reading some of what you'd written, some interviews you'd you'd given about this. Uh, tell me a bit about about the about going out to try and find something that could help you through what you were feeling and what you were going through uh, and not finding it, what were you looking for and what weren't you able to find?
4: Yeah, um, so I really was just trying to look for um, another teenager that had lost a parent um, so that I could relate to someone because I didn't know anyone. All my friends that I know and everyone around me who's my age haven't lost someone and I've only known adults. So I really was trying to look for you know, like a real story um, about it. And all I could find was, you know, 10 tips to help a teenager grieve. Right. Like all these things that you're supposed to do, but it wasn't helpful. It wasn't like what I was looking for.
0: You needed something a little more profound.
4: Yeah, I wanted to like connect to a real person, like, you know.
0: And then you decided... To write is it something that you have you always liked to write? Was it something that you that came to you naturally, or was it really something that you decided to do?
4: Um, I've always loved writing, um, but I really got into it more um, just this le- the last year because um, it's like really helped me to get out my thoughts and my mind, like inner pain, and into the pages because. Sometimes you can't always find like the words or so it's it's really helped me to do that.
0: Yeah, yeah it, it's um it, it's tough sometimes to get all your thoughts in order when you start writing down but sometimes you just start writing and the right things come out, right? Yes. Yeah. What uh, what did you write about? What what would sort of um what were some of the things that you I know I know you sort of started to write about your mom as well, which was a way of going through it in 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 a different way paying tribute to her in some ways, the memories that you had.
4: Mm-hmm. Um. I wrote one of my big chapters at the beginning is um, the journey through cancer and, um, like seeing my mom, um, you know, lose her hair and go through, um, through that process like more than once. Um, and I share kind of um, all my thoughts and feelings through that because I'm a more like introverted person and I like hold all those feelings inside and I didn't have really, I didn't want to to talk about them much. So I, that's mostly what I wrote about in that.
0: Yeah. And, and you just kept going, right? Like, I mean, a book is a a book's a lot, a book's a lot. I mean, I've never written a book. So my congratulations (laughs) to you. I mean, it's a lot of writing and it takes a real, it takes some discipline too, to sit there and do it all the time, but obviously it it really helped you.
4: Mm -hmm. It was really hard. Um, quite a few times because having to go back into the memories um, was like I felt the same pain in my stomach that I had felt when I was like in those moments Um, and I took like a big break um, from writing the book like a few months because I didn't think it would come together I I, like I was like it's too hard but I'm really glad that it did.
0: Yeah. How did you find um, when you sat back down to do it again? What, what made you decide to pick it up again?
4: Um, I knew that there must be like another person my age who is feeling the same way that I am. And I just wanted to, I just knew that it could, you know, help another person. And I thought that was like pretty important.
0: Yeah. So you finished it now. Um, yeah. have you, have you had a chance to, did, did you go back and read the whole thing again to pick and choose what you wanted to put in there? Or did you just sort of present it as one, as one work complete? Um, how did you decide what, what would be in the book?
4: Um, so a few months ago, I started getting into poetry. And so, um, that really helped me like find words for my grief. And so the chapters. Are really talking mostly about like um, the moments with my mom and like going into those memories, and then the poetry, which is after each chapter, is kind of the present and how I'm dealing with the loss now.
0: Yeah, you must have gotten some support from your family too as you go as you went through this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Who do you hope? I mean, you finished it now. I I, it's on Amazon, so I I was looking at it earlier. Um, Who would you like? Who would you like to read it, and and what do you hope they find in there?
4: Um, mostly, really, anyone can read it. It will connect to everyone in a different way. But my hopes is for teenagers to have, and you know, any young people to really have um, a, a a story that they can relate to and I put a like a little journal section at the back with questions um that you can answer um to do with grief and one of them was like um where would you notice grief on your body and where do you hold it because right. um there's a time where I was holding in my grief for so long that it actually started causing pain to my stomach, and, like, I didn't want to eat for a long time, and I had to go to an emergency because, oh, well. like, I didn't know what was going on, and I, I didn't even know that it was grief-related. Um, you know, like, uh, the doctor's advice was to just keep talking to your counselors, or maybe it's an eating disorder, but, like, it made me frustrated because I was like, oh, can someone just name what it is? I don't know what it is. And then I realized that it's probably just the grief.
0: Yeah, you said you, you have a really nice line in there that says that, you know, it helps you take your grief from out underneath the bed. Yes. The um, Have you had any reaction to it? Have you had people comment on, on it and, and talk to you about it? Yes.
4: Um, lots of people, one of um, my friends, actually, who's my age, she has um, one of her, she lost her grandma and she was like her best friend, and she was telling me how my words um, really connected with her and helped her kind of put those, like, words to her emotions that she couldn't even name.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's... it's, I would have you know I, I guess I would have thought over time that there would be something out there for someone who found in your in your situation yet here you you've mm-hmm. produced this thing and you you didn't have any guide to do this, so it's you must feel you must feel really proud of what you've done
4: i do yeah
0: you know i I know the story of grief never ends when the book ends um mm-hmm. do you continue do you to, do you continue to write even now do you i mean there's always other chapters right will you keep adding to it or or have you decided this is going to be the beginning and the end of this chapter, at least this story.
4: Um, I keep writing every day. I'm usually I usually write like a few poems every single day. Um, I'm even I'm working on another book with poems, and that's like because grief continues; it it doesn't just stop, like as you said. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, well, Olivia, listen, congratulations on it. Uh, Writing a book is an incredible accomplishment. Writing a book to help you through something that difficult, even more so. And uh, congratulations on it. I hope it's a huge success.
4: Thank you so much.